fancy graphics. Uh, <laughs> good evening, Camel Church. How are we doing? I, I was like five out of ten. Come on, how, how are we doing tonight? There we go. Uh, all right, if, we've got, if you've got your Bible with you, and I hope you do, uh, grab it, open it up to Acts chapter 1, as tonight we kick off our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter teaching through the book of Acts. Uh, and so last week, Sandy uh, spoke a bit into what this series is going to look like, uh, and, and the fact that we're moving across to an exegetical teaching framework in the evening service. Um, but I do want to just take a quick moment to talk into the logistics of what it's going to look like. So, yes, we are going to be working through the book of Acts. And I'll be the first to admit the book of Acts is a big book. Uh, it is 28 chapters, 1,007 verses. And our aim is to get through each and every one of them in as long as it takes to do that. That being said, I don't want to freak you out. I'm not trying to scare you off from the get-go. Uh, we are still going to be teaching through... Uh, sort of more conventional series. So we'll actually be using natural breaks, natural uh, structures in the text itself to uh, inform us uh, where those series should be so that we can still preach through thematically consistent series. And, and what that means is for tonight, we're actually kicking off our very first series in the book of Acts, and it's a series we have titled Starting Well. And so to kick that off, I, I want to ask you guys a question. Who this year as part of a New Year's resolution, has decided to start something new. Awesome, a couple of you, a couple of you. Uh, I think we know how this works, right? Uh, maybe you've decided that you're going to start going to the gym, that you need to put on some muscle, put on some weight, so that's what you've committed to. Or uh, maybe you've decided you actually need to lose some of that weight, so uh, you've committed to starting a new diet. Or, or maybe you've just tried to put in place some sort of new habit. Okay, second question then. I know we're only three weeks into the year. Uh, who's already broken their New Year's resolution? No one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, it's not just me. That makes me feel a bit better. Uh, see, I, I think on a really basic level, we all understand that this idea of starting something, it's kind of difficult, right? That whether it's relaunching an evening service or starting a new diet, stuff just happens. Obstacles come up. Uh, things we weren't expecting to happen, happen, and it just makes it really difficult for us to start things well. And, and I don't think you get as big of a new thing as starting off a new religion. Uh, but, but that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts, that this movement of Jesus, the, the Christian faith, it begins in the first few chapters. And, and so we, what we want to do over the next couple of weeks is we want to ask the question, well, what did the church do to start so well? How did they go from a whole bunch of no ones are in Jerusalem to a global faith that a third of the world currently professes to? What, what power did they have access to? What things did they put in place? What did they know that allowed them to be as effective as they were? And I suppose importantly for us today, are we still doing those same things? Or have we drifted off course just a little bit? All right, does that sound good? Awesome. Okay, so as I said, if you've got your Bible, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, here we go. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, let me stop there. Um, that's why it's going to take us a while to, to get through the book of Acts. Um, all right, so Sandy sort of spoke into this last week, but the book of Luke and the book of Acts, uh, despite being separated uh, in our Bibles, they're actually 
one single literary work, that they are a two-volume piece dedicated to Jesus' earthly ministry, the, the things he did here on earth in Galilee 2,000 years ago, and then the acts of the apostles that take place after his resurrection. So when Luke is referring to his former book, what, what he is referring to is actually the gospel according to Luke. Uh, so both of these books, Luke and Acts, are dedicated to the same man, Theophilus, uh, and, and scholars believe Theophilus was a wealthy, God-fearing Greek, uh, and that in all likelihood, he sponsored Luke to be able to allow him to write both texts. Uh, but, but what that actually means for us from a practical standpoint today is, in order for, for us to understand the book of Acts, we need to understand why Luke is writing this two-volume piece. Uh, so I'm going to quickly flick back to Luke chapter 1, where Luke himself gives us that explanation. Okay, Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, so... Luke is looking around, he's looking at all the other accounts that are being written of uh, sort of the Jesus movement and the start of the church, and he's going, they're not, they're not quite measuring up to scratch. Uh, you know, in, in all likelihood, he probably has some of the early versions of the other gospels in front of him, uh, and he's like, look, I love what Matthew's doing, but he's, he's leaning way too much on the Hebrew texts, our non-Jewish uh, followers, they're not going to understand what he's talking about. And uh, I love Mark, but he, he's abbreviating everything. It's such a short uh, rendition. And, and John, I, I love John, but so many feelings, so much emotion. And for some reason, John goes on and on and on about the fact that he was the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, which, fun fact, John is only called the disciple that Jesus loved in the Gospel of John, which was written by John, so take from that what you will. Uh, but look, what we know is, is Luke was a physician. So he's probably this details-orientated guy. He's probably pretty analytical. And that actually comes through in the, the text that he writes. And, and what he tells Theophilus is he's going to go around and find as many eyewitness accounts as he possibly can. That he's going to go to the people that were there for the miracles or for the crucifixion of Jesus or for the, the start of church, Pentecost, and, and he's going to ask them as many questions as he possibly can so that he can compile a detailed report of everything that is going on. And, and it's important for us to understand that as we read through the book of Acts, because what it means is Luke is not predominantly writing a book of theology. He's not telling us what to believe. He's not uh, trying to get some sort of ideolo uh, ideology across to us. He is first and foremost writing a work of history. And, and we need to read through it in that way, that, that Luke is writing so that the reader, so that we may have certainty about things that actually occurred. All right, back to the book of Acts. Uh, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, one more thing, and then I promise I'll move on past verse one. Uh, see, what, what Luke is saying here is that the first book, the Gospel of Luke, it, it captures everything Jesus began to do and teach. So everything from his birth through to his death and resurrection, that, that's all in the first volume. And the implication there is that in the second book, the, the Act of the Apostles, 
Luke is going to deal with all that Jesus continues to do and teach. That everything we're going to read over the next 28 chapters of the book of Acts, it is still the work of Jesus. It's just that now that work is being done through the hands and feet of his disciples. And the reason I want to highlight that tonight is because we need to know we are still living in the truth of that implication. We we are still living in the time after Jesus' resurrection, but before his return. And that means we are still living in a time where we are actually partakers and co-workers with all that Jesus continues to do and teach in the world around us. That the the acts of the apostles, they don't finish when we get to the book of Acts. That the truth of the matter is that the mission of the disciples is still our mission today. It hasn't changed. It, It hasn't drifted off course. It is still what we should be doing today. And so as we ask the question, how did the early church start so well? I think the first thing we need to understand is the mission of the church. Because the early church knew their mission, and so it is pivotal that we know it as well. All right, verse 2. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All right, so there's a lot going on there. Uh, First and foremost, Luke is actually just putting us chronologically back into the story, uh, that at the end of the Gospels, Jesus uh, is dead, he's buried, and then he's resurrected on the third day. And while all of that is happening, the disciples are sort of running and hiding. Uh, They're they're afraid they're going to be the next ones on the chopping block, and uh, they, they sort of find themselves hiding in this locked room. And it's in that place of fear that the resurrected Jesus meets them, that, that he sort of materializes in that room with them. Uh, and it's, uh, he gives them what Luke here calls the instructions through the Holy Spirit. Uh, he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he walks around and he breathes on them. So it's definitely pre-COVID days. And uh, he, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them to wait until they have received further power from on high. That there is this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the language Luke is using here is the baptism of the Spirit. And I'm not going to go too deep into this because it's a bit of a rabbit hole and we can get stuck here all night. But uh, the word baptism in Greek, it's the word baptizo, and it means to wash, submerge, or dip in water. And it's this figurative language that is used to describe an outpouring or a a washing of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. And whether or not you want to take that as a once and for all thing that that covers all the disciples forever or a continual pouring out or, or something that has to happen again and again and again, the fact of the matter is that Jesus is promising that every believer will receive a deposit of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Uh, But but the the verse I actually want to focus on from that big chunk of of text there is verse 3. That Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And and the reason I want to highlight that verse is because even though it sounds like a bit of a nothing verse, it's 
It's actually really pivotal in our understanding of the mission of the disciples. See, Jesus presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. Uh, and the word there for convincing proofs, it's tekmerion, and this is actually the only place in all of the New Testament it occurs. But uh, what we know is it doesn't just mean a logical explanation. Uh, so Luke isn't saying that it had to be explained to the disciples that Jesus was alive. No, the word means to give infallible proof by demonstrable evidence. In other words, it is evidence that is provided by firsthand experience, by touch, by sight and feel. In other words, the apostles, they, they actually experienced the resurrection of Jesus. And I think the, the best demonstration of this is the disciple Thomas, who uh, gets the unfortunate moniker Doubting Thomas. And, and he wasn't there when, when this took place. He wasn't there when Jesus showed up in the room. And, and he basically says, unless I see the nail marks in the hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And, and so Jesus shows up and, and he lets him do just that. He says, Thomas, here I am, like touch my hands, feel where the nails went through, see that the, the hole in my side where the spear pieced, pierced me, see that I am actually here, that there was this tangibility to the resurrection that the disciples experienced. And if I'm being honest, I, side point, I, I don't think Thomas actually followed through uh, with that comment. I, I doubt he actually had the, the gall to stick his hands inside the, the risen Jesus' side. But uh, the, the fact remains that the disciples actually experienced something. That for three years, they walked around with Jesus. They grew to know him, to, to, to trust him, to love him as, as, as both a friend and then eventually as their Lord and Savior. And then one day they saw him die. And they grieved that. They grieved again, not just the loss of their rabbi, but the hope that they attached to him. And then three days later, they experienced the risen Jesus. Now the gospel, it's not just a set of feelings. It's not just something we think or, or, or think might have happened. It is historical fact. That there was a man named Jesus who lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and then three days later walked out of an empty tomb. And church, for the disciples, that changed everything about everything. See, the early church, they could not stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't preach a message that was like five steps to a more content life or three ways you can interpret the, the book of Genesis. They, they simply preached the resurrection of Jesus. That the resurrection of Jesus was the great burden of all they taught. And I think that is the first thing we need to understand about the mission of the early church, that they were called to no other message but the gospel. And church, the same is true for us today. See, the fact that Jesus actually rose, the fact that Jesus has actually died for our sins needs to change everything about everything. That, that yes, we, we need to do all the things that church is supposed to do. We, we, we need to go out and feed the poor. We need to uh, put the homeless in homes. We need to love people and, and build community and, and small groups and all of that amazing stuff. The, the early church did that. But we cannot do that separated from the word and the message of the gospel. Church, the, the, our goal, our, our mission is not to give people a sandwich on their way to hell. Our mission is to plunder hell and to populate heaven. That we can have no other message but the gospel. All right, so, so Jesus appears to them. 
He appears to them over this period of 40 days. He he teaches them and he speaks about the kingdom of God. And then verse six, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. Okay, Uh, confession, I, I love this verse. And the reason I love it is because I regularly teach a whole bunch of teenagers. And it gives me hope. Because what is happening here is Jesus Christ, the third person of the Godhead, is giving a 40-day intensive to his 12 closest disciples about the kingdom of God. And the very first question they ask shows that they missed the whole point of the message. And it means it's okay if my kids don't always understand my far less infallible teachings. But see, the reason this question is actually an issue is because it shows the disciples are coming at everything from the total wrong attitude. That they are saying it's all about me, myself, and I. Like, Jesus, awesome, if you are here, then let's do this. Let's get the ball rolling. Let's kick out the Romans. Let's come and establish the physical kingdom of Israel forever. Come and rule. Come and be our king. Give us what we want. And Jesus is just like, guys, that's not the point. It's not for you to know the times or the season. And it's not about overthrowing some human empire that, you know, is gonna be overthrown in the next hundred years anyway. No, the missions are bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth. It's not about invading physical kingdoms. It is about invading people's hearts. It's not about releasing physical chains, but the chains of sin and brokenness that strap people in sin. And so Jesus goes on, verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Church, that is it. That is the mission statement of the disciples. And all I really wanna do for the rest of our time together tonight is, is just dig through that statement because it is the same mission that God gives each and every one of us. And look, I could get all theological and deep about what it means, but at at a really uh, grassroots level, all a witness is, is someone who authentically speaks about what they have seen and heard. In a court of law, it would be someone who testifies about what they have experienced, not what they believe, not what they feel or think, not their ideological preferences or their theological understanding. A witness is simply someone who says, this is what I have experienced. And so for the disciples, it meant someone who authentically tells of what Jesus has done in their lives. And I'll be careful here because Jesus doesn't say, go out and witness. He says, you will be my witnesses. And that's an important clarification because it is first and foremost a matter of identity and purpose as opposed to a task to complete. See, if you've grown up in church circles, the the moment I bring up the word witness, your head probably goes into a whole bunch of different directions. Uh, Maybe you think of tracts, which for those of you who don't know, those little pamphlets we used to hand out that have the the gospel in like four easy points, and we'd we'd give them to strangers and hope that they'd be converted through them. Uh, Maybe you, you think of door knocking, sort of going from house to house, knocking on the door saying, have you heard of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? 
Uh, maybe you think of really awkward youth group conversations and walking up to random people and asking them about Jesus or that, that guy standing on the, the corner on a box yelling for people to turn or burn. And, and look, Jesus can and does save through those things, but that is not what I think Jesus is 100% talking about here. See, we shouldn't view witnessing as the separate act we are supposed to complete. That it's not like every couple of months we can go out and tell someone about Jesus and that sort of ticks the box off our witnessing card. That the second truth we need to know about the mission of the disciples is that they were called to be a witness and not just to go witnessing. That at the core of what it means to be a Christian is that we live our lives in such a way that the work of Christ in and through us cannot help but be evidenced in all that we do and say. That out of an overflow of a relationship and an intimacy with Jesus, we cannot help but authentically represent him to the world around us. And look, the best explanation of what this looks like I've ever been given is this, and stick with me, it'll make sense, I promise. Uh, imagine you got hit by a train um, and somehow you survive. And so you come limping into your workplace or into your school or into your university. What's gonna happen in that moment is everyone's gonna turn and they're gonna look at you and they're gonna notice that something is different. That they're gonna say things like, hey, you're not walking the way you used to walk. You're not talking the way you used to talk. You don't look the same as you did yesterday. That something about you has changed on a fundamental level because of what you have experienced. Church, that is what it means, and that's what it looks like to witness Jesus Christ. That, that he comes into your life, that the train of God's grace rides you over, and for the rest of your life, you look fundamentally different. The way you do generosity looks different. The way you spend your time and give your attention and your focus, it looks different. The, the way you interact with people looks different. That your identity changes on such a fundamental level because of what you have experienced, that you cannot help but witness that uh, fact to the rest of the world. But, and this is a really big but, we still have to use our words. See, something I hear a lot of Christians often say is use words only when necessary. Oh, sorry, share the gospel always, use words only when necessary. Uh, and I get what people are trying to say. I just don't think it's entirely right because it's sort of like saying share your phone number and only use numbers when it's necessary. Always necessary, church. Uh, Romans 10, how then can they call on one they have not believed in how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? And if I can add to scripture, how can they preach unless they are using their words? See church, no one is gonna see you living a good Christian life. No one is gonna see you being more generous to the poor or not lying or being more kind and suddenly be convicted of the fact that they are a sinner who needs a savior. No, what is gonna happen is they're gonna see you living this abundant life. They're gonna see you living a life that looks fundamentally different from everything around them. And that's gonna stir up something in them. And they're gonna come up to you and they're gonna ask you some sort of question. And then what we need to do is turn to them and tell them authentically about what we have seen and heard. And that involves using our words. And look, I know 
It's uncomfortable. I know it's something we don't like doing. And if you want a really simple formula about what that can look like, uh, what you do is you say, before I met Jesus, I was blank. And then you fill in the blank of what your life looked like before you met Jesus. And then you say, but now I've met Jesus and I look like blank. And then you, then you fill in what Jesus has done to your life. And that works regardless of, of whether or not you were converted in a moment or whether or not it was a period of time that it happened because Jesus has come into your life and done something to you and you should look different from before he met you. Uh, in the book of John, we're given the story of the, this blind man who's, who's given his sight back. And he doesn't know Jesus, he doesn't understand how this works. And the Pharisees rock up and they're like, okay, tell us what happened. And the blind man's like, look, I don't know. All I can tell you is I was blind and now I can see. And so the Pharisees are like, okay, but was it the Messiah that did it to you? I don't know, but I was blind and now I can see. Okay, but are you saying he is the son of God? Look, I don't think you're hearing me. I was blind and now I can see. Like, I don't have the answers. I can't explain the theology behind it. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, but that is my story. That is what I have experienced. That is what I have seen and heard. I was blind, but now I can see. Church, that is what it should look like. That should be the cry of our life. That is how we authentically represent what Jesus has done that we say, before I met Jesus, I was a sinner who needed a savior. But now I have been raised into new life. And I can't explain it to you. I can give you some of the theology, but most of it I don't really get. But that is what he has done. That is my testimony. And church, when we do that, I promise you, hearts and lives will be changed. Again, not, not because of our wise words, not because of our understanding of the Bible or, or our theology, but simply because of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel. That, that Jesus preludes his mission statement to the disciples by promising them power. He says, you will receive power and then you will be my witnesses. Uh, see, the point was never really that the disciples were supposed to do this on their own strength. That they weren't supposed to somehow muster up enough courage to get to the very ends of the earth. Because you realize how impossible that is, right? This is a group of 12, I mean, 11 now, they lost one. Um, 11 nobodies. Most of them have never been more than 150 kilometers out of their hometown. And look, they've experienced some growth, right? I mean, Jesus' movement has gone from like 12 to 120 in three years. That's, that's pretty good for church growth numbers. But now he's saying the rest of the world. It's impossible. There's no way they can do that on their own. See, the third thing we need to understand about the mission of God, the mission of the disciples, is that we are called with a power, not our own. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And, and that word there for power, to throw another Greek word at you, is, is dunamis. And I was going to tell you this really cool story about the fact that the English word dynamite comes from the, the word dunamis, and it's this explosive power, but I've been informed by Sandy that is a common um, preacher's trope, and it's not actually that true. So I apologize on behalf of every sermon you've ever heard that, that uses that one. Uh, but, but the word is still a really strong word. 
Uh, it, it means power, might, bodily strength, the ability to do anything, outward power, influence, authority, or a force of war. Jesus is not promising us a small amount of power. He's not providing us a little bit of aid just so we can get going. He says, you will receive power beyond yourself. You will receive power that is beyond your own ability. Uh, so much so that when Jesus talks about what the Holy Spirit is gonna do in our lives, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Uh, and then truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these because I am going to the Father. That, that Jesus says it is better to have the power of the Holy Spirit in you than it is to have Jesus standing beside you. But like, just stop and process that for a second because hands up, who would like Jesus walking around with them in their daily lives, yeah? <laughs> but, but Jesus says it's better to have the Holy Spirit in you. It is, there's more power available with him in you. And, and like the disciples, right? The disciples have seen Jesus um, walking on water, calming storms, giving sight back to the blind, raising the dead, uh, cleansing lepers. Uh, they, they've seen him do all these miracles. And he's like, compared to that, I mean, sorry, compared to having the Holy Spirit, that, that is nothing. You will do greater things than these. See, the truth of the matter is that delivering the truth by itself is not enough. That the gospel only has the power to change people's hearts if it is delivered with the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. That Spurgeon once said, we might preach till our tongues are rotted till we should exhaust our lungs and die. But never would a soul be converted unless there were a mysterious power going with it. The Holy Spirit changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to a stone wall as preach to humanity unless the Holy Spirit be with the word to give it the power to convert the soul. And that is such good news for us because it means it's not about us, church. It's not about how well we deliver the message. It's not about how, how succinctly we can explain the gospel. It is all through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you actually stop and think about it, that's the only way it actually all makes sense, right? I mean, how else do you explain the fact that we've gone from 11 nobodies standing on a hill and somehow 2,000 years later, over 14,000 kilometers away, uh, in a completely different language, in a completely different culture, in a different context, in a different time, we are standing here today as a result of that very same movement. Church, we are the ends of the earth. We are the accomplishment of the Great Commission and it only makes sense if the Holy Spirit is doing something amazing through our witnessing. And look, what that means for, for me and you is, and this is the fourth thing we need to understand and, and then we'll be closing up, is we are called wherever God would send us. And for the apostles 2,000 years ago, it was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And so what I wanna do is I wanna put that in our context today. So Jerusalem, the place where you are right now, wherever your feet find themselves, the, the people who act the same way as you, the, the people who think the same way as you, they, they believe similar things, they, they do similar things, go to those people first. Go to your closest circle of influence, your friends, your family, the people that you can convince simply because of the fact that they live the way that you do. 
And then next you expand your circle and you go to Judea. They're the people that are sort of in your general area of influence. They're the people that are like you, but, but not quite the same. You know, your workmates, your social communities, your sporting clubs, go to those people next. Your sort of next level of influence. And then Samaria. And if you were hearing this 2,000 years ago as a Jew, you would have sort of winced at that one. Because the Samaritans were sort of viewed as the people that they did all the wrong things. They worshipped the wrong way. They worshipped at the wrong place. They, they worshipped the wrong sort of things. They, they chose the wrong sides in a couple of wars that had previously happened. That They were sort of the people that Jews didn't like. If I can be honest, they're the people that the Jews didn't think could be saved. And if I can convict you for a second, who is it in your life that you think can't be saved? Who, who is it in your life that you think is too far gone? They're too deep in sin, they're too far away for God for him to come into their, into their lives. And as you're thinking through that person, I imagine a whole bunch of you have a, a specific person in your head right now. Um, and, and if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in, there's, there's actually a little pamphlet in it. At the bottom of it, I've left a space where you can write that name down. And, and what, what I would encourage you to do is to write that name down and pin it on your fridge. And for the rest of this series, I want you to be praying for that person. I want you to be praying that, that God would invade their lives, that, that God would do something in them that brings them to salvation and that you would have an opportunity to witness to them. Because church, God wants to move in those people's lives. God wants to bring those people to salvation, the people that we think he can't. And then finally, you will be my witnesses to the very end of the earth. That's everyone else, church. See, we don't get to choose where we witness. We don't get to choose who we witness. It's a part of who we are, that we authentically represent Jesus everywhere we go. That the mission is to reflect the light of Jesus into the darkest spaces. That the mission of each and every Christian is to authentically represent what they have seen and heard in Jesus. And so verse nine, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight and they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. All right, as we close this off and the band can start coming up. I'm not gonna finish in sort of a traditional way. I'm not gonna finish with um, a whole bunch more application points or a summary of the message tonight. I actually wanna finish with a story. And the reason I want to finish with a story is because it's a story of someone you've never heard of, and it just shows the impact that you can have if you authentically represent Christ to the world. All right, so Albert McMacken. Albert McMacken was a 24-year-old farmer who had recently come to faith in Christ. Uh, Albert was pretty enthusiastic about Jesus. He, he had a love for Jesus because uh, of what he had seen. And, and so when a new preacher came into town, what he would do is every evening he would fill his truck with as many people as he possibly could and he would drive them to go and see this, uh, this preacher and hear his sermon. 
Uh, one such man, or I suppose more correctly, young boy that uh, Albert tried to constantly bring along was the son of a local farmer. And, and Albert tried everything he could, but try as he might, the, the young man was simply too hard to persuade. He, he was busy, he, he had too many things on his mind, and more importantly, he was busy falling in and out of love with as many different girls as he possibly could. And, and, and really, he wasn't attracted to Christianity. And so eventually, Albert managed to persuade him to come along. Not by telling him some amazing truth, not, not by convincing him that it was gonna be an amazing sermon, but simply by offering to let him drive the truck. And so the, the man said yes, and this happened for a couple nights, and uh, eventually they arrived one night, and Albert's guest decided to go in. And he was instantly captured by thoughts he had never known before. So the young man came back the next day and the next day and the next day until one night he went forward and he gave his life to Jesus. Now look, if that had been the sum total of Albert's witness, I think we would all agree he had done an effective job of authentically sharing what he had experienced. The thing is, you've probably never heard of Albert McMacken, but I'm almost certain you've heard of the young man that drove the truck. His name was Billy Graham. And since then, Billy Graham, who has now passed, he preached the gospel to over 215 million people. And he helped lead 2.2 million of those to faith in Jesus. See church, you have no idea the impact you can have if all you do is authentically represent Jesus to those around you. And it doesn't mean you have to be Billy Graham. No one's asking you to do that. No one is asking you to be anyone except yourself. And the fact of the matter is we can't all be Billy Graham, but we can all be like Albert McMacken and we can all authentically represent Christ to the world around us. So Lord, I, I just thank you. I thank you that, that for some reason you have chosen to use us as your witnesses. A whole bunch of, of broken people who, who don't really know what they're doing and don't really understand how or why you would save us. And yet for some reason you choose to use us. And so Lord, I just pray that you would give us opportunities. You would give us opportunities to go places and just represent you to the world around us. And in that moment, we wouldn't worry about what we're saying or how to say it because we would know that it is your Spirit working through us. But Lord, I just pray that you would use us in a mighty way. That we would witness who you are to a world that so desperately needs you. In your name we pray. Amen.